0: Hello, folks, and welcome to Drop World's News. I'm AJ Camacho, and I'm joined, as always, by my brilliant co-producers, Diego Austin.
1: Great to be here.
0: And Nick Castillo. Pleasure, as always. So, as you probably know by now, we're not actually in the midst of producing a season, or we're getting ready for the next season, that is. And in the interim, we wanted to do a little chat with each other in person this time, actually, as well, rather than the typical remote, to talk about what we're kind of looking at in the news right now, directions that we see this next season going, and as well as just a reflection on some highlights from the last season of Pindrome. We're going to start with the news. As we're seeing it right now, I'm someone who likes to look relatively near term with this stuff, because I think when you just start talking five years in the future, it's just too hard to predict. Uh, So Nick, tell us, what's
2: like the number one news story
0: that you're keeping an eye on over the next three months?
2: Uh, Sure. I think like most people in the world, the number one news story in my eyes and in my mind is going to be the Israel-Hamas war. Mm -hmm. That's obviously, you know, every major news broadcast, first 10 minutes is always devoted to that. Um, Most meaningful short-term developments is probably going to be the degree to which the international community begins starting to pressure Israel to commit to a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. Um, Which we're
0: already seeing a little bit of. As of recording this, there was was a, like, isn't it that there's a pause of a few hours every day in fighting? Yes. So the
2: Israelis have agreed to four-hour pauses on a daily basis in Mm -hmm. order for civilians to evacuate towards the south. Um, which is obviously short of what most people in the international community who are interested in the ceasefire actually want, mm-hmm. um, even short of what Biden has been requesting, which is uh, these humanitarian pauses, you know, a day, a couple days, to get an aid to, to you yeah. know, have some stability there. Um, most interestingly, we saw the French president, Emmanuel Macron, throw his weight fully behind um, a ceasefire, and I think you're going to see an increasing number of, especially European capitals, who, mm-hmm. you know, the Arab world has been calling for a ceasefire for days now because of the... You know really drastically high uh, civilian death count mm-hmm. um the continental europeans may be moving in that direction as well uh, you know the, the the big allies of israel are the anglophone countries the united states and britain in particular so we'll, we'll see what happens there but it's it's becoming increasingly clear, i think that the israelis are out of step with what their allies want biden wants a humanitarian pause the israelis have been very very resilient to resistant to any of that biden and blinken have been trying to get more aid in the israelis have been resistant to that as well, though they've allowed in some, right, 20 trucks a day is is sort of what we've been hearing about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the degree to which the international community and Israel's partners are going to begin more intensely pressuring them to commit to a humanitarian pause or or something that, you know, some might even call a ceasefire is going to be the major international aspect um, of the war over the next month or so. I mean, the, the civilian death toll has been really, really, you know, horrific. The footage out of Gaza, you know, gets worse by the day, Mm -hmm. you hear these horrific reports about the way hospitals are are being forced to operate without anesthesia, these really kind of like really brutal realities of what's been, you know, um, happening in Gaza over the last uh, 10 days, over the last few weeks, and how it just seems to be getting worse and worse on a daily basis, you know, we're going to have to see how the international community responds to that, and in particular, the countries that really hold sway in uh, Jerusalem, which are the United States, Mm -hmm. and I suppose Great Britain to an extent.
0: And I do feel like that's, this is the event, in one of those rare events in world news where the moment you hear it, you know that she's shaking things up. Like the fact that Hamas had the capability to do this, you knew instantly that the ramifications would define the conflict for a long time to come and it would be hugely important. I have been very surprised by the international response and how Israel has been as receptive as it has in a way, even though it's not meeting the demands. To me, that's a little bit surprising. What are your thoughts, Diego, on the the future of this conflict in the coming
1: months? Well, what I'm looking at very intently is actually the Palestinian Authority. Um, because I, I, I've been wondering for a long time how long they can survive. Mm-hmm. Because they're very unpopular. Mahmoud Abbas is very old. This is something we've talked about a lot. Blinken just made a trip around the region. He met with... Mahmoud Abbas, um, the the most useful leader in, in the Middle East, uh, and he he said that something along the lines of, like, seemed to hint, like, yes, the Palestinian Authority will have a role in Gaza, and I'm like, what are you talking about, Anthony Blinken? The Palestinian Authority is, like, useless and incompetent, and everybody hates them. I, like, they can't even control Nablus and Jenin. I went there, like there's like no presence of like any sort of state in Nablus and Jenin because everyone hates the Palestinian Authority and like there were just mass protests um well pretty big protests I don't I mean I guess saying mass protests is like hard to define, but pretty big protests Mm -hmm. throughout the West Bank including in Ramallah um were reports of live ammunition being fired and recently this hasn't been picked up so much by the western media which I'm pretty disappointed about but there was an assassination attempt yeah. on Mahmoud Abbas. I
0: actually wasn't even um, aware of this.
1: And yeah. it was by this obscure new group called Sons of Abu Jandal, um, which, I mean, I, I don't condone that That's terrible, but that, that is a very good name. For <laughs> <chefs> <laughs> like, they yeah. might be yeah. doing terrible things, it, but they know how to well, pick a good, name. A good it, name. But it gets, it's, I, it, yeah. the name is interesting, though. Don't worry, don't worry. Okay. In there. But um, so some people I've seen some accounts saying, "Oh, it was Hamas." I was like, "No, no, no. It's like arguably worse because uh, it, it, it Hamas I'm sorry, is like worse than Hamas. Well, not that they're worse than Hamas, but if it's Hamas, like okay, that's kind of like expected. It's like different factions fighting each other. No, it turns out these were defectors from the Palestinian Authority, from what I'm reading at least. It seems yeah. like they were like guys in the security apparatus who defected and tried to assassinate so that points to a deeper issue of oh well you got and that's a rift. more
0: that's more coup like if, if
1: these exactly sure. if these reports are true um that it was guys in the pa then that i think is even worse than it being hamas because it points to like you have a rift within the pa that's gotten to the point where someone tried to assassinate Mahmoud abbas and we could go back to the name of um, who was abu jandal that was like the the sort of nickname of a guy who um during operation defensive shield in 2002 in Jenin. Um, sort of defected from the PA and became like the main leader of, I, um, I guess what they would call like resistance in um, Jenin, against like the the Israeli operation. Mm-hmm. So it points to a sentiment in the the PA that there, there there's some people there who feel that this sort of complacency um, with what's happening in Gaza and generally just collaboration with israel is not the way to go down anymore and they want to like deviate from that Sons of abu jandal they issued uh an ultimatum to um abu mazin and they pretty much said that he needs to take a more active role with what's happening in gaza which is vague but they could be suggesting that he needs to like part with israel and maybe take up arms or, or something or at least or at least just be like way more aggressive than he is which i mean i i do not think that Mahmoud Abbas is capable of changing his strategy, like, at all. Because <laughs> that's, yeah. like, what he's shown. And he's, like, 87 years mm-hmm. old and, like, very old and just not energetic. Yeah.
2: So I think um, more than is, that, yeah. though, Abu Mazen's always constrained yeah. because the PA is super reliant on foreign that allies is, and yeah, foreign yeah, yeah. They,
0: they wouldn't exist if it wasn't for yeah. the international community recognition.
2: So them. Abu Mazen can't call for like, you know, armed resistance against the state of Israel, which is what it seems like, especially these guys, are asking of him, right? right sort yeah. of a return to Intifada style warfare between Fata blocks. And um, the IDF, which Abu Mazin's not gonna call for. <laughs> yeah, I will say
1: Abu Mazen is put in a very difficult position. It's 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 very hard to be the Palestinian Authority, I think. <laughs> but also, like, man, I I I've seen other guys than the Palestinian Authority make like make maybe more energetic speeches. Well oh, he's eighty seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like there are guys
2: within the Palestinian Authority who he, like Make better, who are younger, who are um, more energetic, who speak good English, yeah. guys who can maybe make a better case to the exactly. international community. The foreign minister, whose name I'm yeah. blanking on, um, I know you can maybe about. add that in post. Yeah, because he um, he
0: was he he wrote a good piece in the
2: Economist, for example. He was on the PBS NewsHour yesterday. Like, like this is, who is a guy. He, he's um, he's younger. He's energetic. He can make a good yeah. case. He probably to him. has the more issue, than Mahmoud. The, the
1: issue is how you're gonna make that transition of leadership because yeah. it, if they hold elections, Hamas is probably gonna win. The one guy who might be able to compete with. Uh, Ismail Hania, the leader of Hamas in an election in the West Bank um, or just across like the Palestinian territories is um, Marwan um, He, but he was, it's complicated though because he was uh, the leader of the Second Intifada, I believe he led um, Tanzim which like is a, a faction of Fatah that was more, I guess aggressive during the Second Intifada he's in prison for the rest of his life um, I mean, I, I don't know if so I, I, even if he were to win an election, it's like he's running things from prison. Unless Israel decides that... But would
2: Israel uh, allow him to run?
1: Well, if, if they think it's so urgent as in like, Mahmoud Abbas is going to die and it's either this guy or Hamas, Yeah. then maybe. Um, but it would but, have to be a desperate with, situation with, like that. It yeah, it, it's it, it really... I think a lot of the direction that... This conflict is gonna go, in, is it gonna depend on who wins the blame game after the Gaza war? Because if the wrong people win the blame game after the Gaza war, they could be like, "Well, we're just gonna do away with this whole thing." Um, but I, I, from what I'm seeing, it I do think Bibi is catching a lot of flack. I do think that the far right guys are catching a lot of flack, So I.
2: I- So I think we should talk a bit about Israeli domestic, Paul, um, and where that's going to go, because that's obviously very important. A lot of the polling and a lot of the conversations I'm seeing on this issue is framing Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition Blue and White Party, (laughs) as the next, um, you know, the the polling indicates that he's the most popular figure. He's in the war cabinet at the moment making high-level decisions. He's had uh, strong challenges to Netanyahu before in in recent elections. Um, Gantz is also popular at the moment because he's a former um, IDF head. He was the chair of the, of, right, the right, right. of the like you know chief council of the IDF or, or whatever you call it. So he can you know pitch himself as a military guy, which there's a strong record of, of Israeli politicians being able to pitch themselves as strong military guys. This was like Ariel Sharon. And I Yusuf was going to say Sharon. That was his whole the whole reason yeah. he succeeded in getting back into power. the The issue with Gantz, though, I think, is that he's super status quo. Like yes, Netanyahu is a right winger. He's not a status quo guy necessarily in some ways because. He's, like, you know, uh, talked very openly about a desire to annex parts of the West Bank. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very pro-settler and, and brings these right-wing guys into coalition with him. So he's not really totally a status quo guy. Gantz is, like, totally a status quo guy in my view. And the problem with that is that the status quo isn't sustainable, right? Yeah. Right. And like,
0: by status quo, I mean, like, the cutting the grass strategy.
2: Yeah, like, so the, cool. like, the mowing the grass where, like, every few years you go in and kill as many terrorists as possible to keep it under control. Mm-hmm. Settlements, you're not going to do anything about that. The occupation remains, like, a brutal reality of daily life mm-hmm. in, in, in the West Bank. Who knows what's what they're going to do with Gaza in the years to come? Netanyahu's talking about a, an indefinite occupation, more or less, of Gaza by the IDF, which is like a terrible idea, right. um, in my view. So I guess uh, the future of Gaza is sort of a wrinkle in that status quo idea, because what does it mean to have a status quo with Gaza again? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it means an occupation that looks like what's going on in the West Bank, but you know that that, that that's a whole can of worms. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so it's hard to even make predictions about that. Right.
0: Um, Look, we've had a really good talk about Israel, domestic politics, and the region more broadly, but uh, I want to give us two more issues uh, looking forward that come to my mind. And they're both elections. So most urgently is the Argentine elections. Um, And it's so recent, I won't talk about it too much, other than we have Javier Millet, also known as the chainsaw guy, who is proposing these really libertarian economic policy ideas. And then we have uh, I f- regrettably forget the name of the uh, of his challenger at the moment, but more in line with the uh, government that we see at the moment, more typical of Argentinian economics, of not being fully libertarian, having a little bit more government intervention.
1: Yeah, the other guy is like a revenant from the Piron. Yeah, he's a Peronista and right. all that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But the uh, impact for this country could be huge. It looks right now like Millet is going to have a difficult time, but it's not impossible. And yeah. particularly if Millet won... I mean Argentina is the economy that for a hundred years has every ingredient for an immense success and yet consistently stumbles and not that I'm generally a libertarian uh, in terms of economics myself but it would have the potential to shake things up one way or another. And That could be a really big deal for Argentina for better or worse, that type of change of leadership. Mm-hmm. Equally, um, keeping with the Peronista Maybe eventually something will turn around. It's going to have huge ramifications for this country, though.
1: Is um, Millet pro-BRICS or anti-BRICS?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure what his position on BRICS is. I'm sure we can look this up Because I, right
1: I know now. that um, Argentina, I believe, was one of the countries that was like, proposed to enter. Yeah, and America. I think that's
0: officially it. they will be in January, okay. um, unless something changes. I think,
1: if I don't remember, if I'm... Well, We'll we'll, we'll just check. I don't Mm want to make any statements, I guess, but...
0: Uh, And while we check for that, I'll also add, I think, the Taiwan elections. Oh, so
1: Mie has
2: indicated he would be interested in uh, a withdraw from approved application
1: of BRICS membership. That's what I thought, yeah. That's another big deal. Look, man, like, as an American, I'm just like, (laughs) look, man, I'm kind of looking at these Argentine elections, I'm like, man... It's going to be good for uh it's going to be good for <laughs> Well, us he wants to, to dollarize,
2: right? right? He does. He wants to dollarize, which is great for U.S. currency, yeah. in all honesty.
0: Yes, and it could also have the impact. In fact, I was in Argentina, like, less than a year ago. Yeah, it's a good time to be in New York and bring American <laughs> cash into Argentina. Well, it's usually um, a good
2: time to bring American cash into Argentina. <laughs> um, this is sort of the issue, right? Like, right. I, so, and,
0: and like I'm, I, I'm generally of the philosophy that libertarian that libertarian economics of the degree that Milay is arguing for, I'm generally of the philosophy that's not a good thing. Equally. What has been happening so far has clearly not been working. So there is that bit of me that's like, yeah. even if it seems like a bad change, it is a change. And I can understand why Argentinians itself. would have a similar philosophy. So I am
2: not a Latin America guy, nor am I an economics guy, so I should probably prefix, preface everything I'm going to say with that. But the general story you hear about Argentina is that the Peronas have more or less run the country into the ground for the past century. Like, really outrageous yeah. levels of spending for an economy of its size, bailouts every like five years from the IMF, like tons of corruption going on with the Kirchnerists. Corruption, corruption is a big factor. Um, so if I was an Argentine, I don't know why I would elect a Peronist when the Peronists have been running the country yeah. for more or less the past you know, 75 years, and what was once seen as one of like the great future economies of the world in the mid-20th century has really been just a chaotic mess, especially yes. when they look across the border to Chile, which has been a pretty successful country economically. Yes.
0: And I, I think a lot of people would argue, whether it's Milton Friedman or whether it's uh, Chilean... Middle class and above Chileans themselves. That the reason they were successful is because Pinochet put in a rel- relatively libertarian economic model. Oh, that and All copper of the prices, copper prices certainly helped <laughs> as well. And you can make these arguments about what yeah. was the reason for succeeding. But at least if you ask Milton Friedman, uh, who didn't advise Pinochet but did actually have chats with him and supposedly inspired the Junta's economic policy, Friedman would argue. Uh, Pinochet did a bad decision as a dictator because by liberalizing the economy in the way that he did, um, well, that's not very conducive to a dictatorship because it promotes a better, eco- uh, more prosperous economy. When people are more prosperous in the, com- in the economy, they want to have things like democracy. Modernization. That's Friedman's argument. Modernization, economic you know, modernization. It's funny
2: you say that. I often think that right-wing dictatorships end up being um, less long-lasting than left-wing dictatorships. Mm. If you think about the countries that we talk about as making these like really... Productive, like sort of slow running transitions to democracy. They are, and I'm thinking in particular about uh, Chile, but also about Taiwan and mm-hmm. South Korea. They were right wing dictatorships, right? Yeah. As opposed to left wing dictatorships that usually build like this mass party apparatus that allows the regime to be really, really solidly uh, in control of the regime.
0: And I think that's the best argument for why, and this is getting slightly tangential, but it's a nice segue. Uh, and I think. That's really why China hasn't democratized, or at least that's the best argument I've heard for why it hasn't. Economically, it looks very good, but because it's left-wing, the money is largely controlled by the party. And so if you're the middle class, you might want democracy, but you don't want to bite the hand that feeds because you would tie your success to the party. And I'm going to use this as a segue to get into the other honorable mention I wanted to mention, which is the Taiwan elections. Because these are coming up. As China, the PRC, is amping up its pressure on Taiwan and threats to invade... You have the incumbent party, which is more generally more pro-independence. And you have the challengers, the Kuomintang, who are the historically in charge party of uh, Taiwan, who founded the country as something separate from the PRC, uh, who are more in favor of unification. And the general narrative is that if the incumbents remain, China will have an increased incentive to try to invade because they do not want Taiwan to declare independence. And they're not even happy very much with the current status quo of de facto independence. I don't know what your all thoughts are on this, but China's always a big hot-button issue.
1: That is definitely something to look at now. Um, of course, something that people have been talking about is... I mean, it started with the war in Ukraine, where people were saying "Well, now that everyone's kind of distracted with the war in Ukraine. It might be kind of a a good time for Mm -hmm. China to do something, and now with the the war in Gaza opening another front, um, that is definitely increasingly relevant. Um, I'm not an expert on uh, Taiwanese politics, but from what you're describing, it does sound like this election is going to be very important.
2: I'll say though, um, I still... There's obvious reason for concern around Chinese aggression against Taiwan. I still, generally speaking, fall on the side of I don't think they would be willing to do it. Um, I think that all the disincentives for an invasion of Taiwan remain, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether or not the US is distracted in, in Ukraine or Gaza. There are huge economic incentives uh, around not invading Taiwan for the foreseeable future, in part because the backlash from the industrialized Western world would be so intense. Mm-hmm. Like We've seen this wholesale decoupling of Western economies from Russia. I don't think something that dramatic would be possible with China because China is so crucial for, um, you know, uh, uh, Western economies, but you possibly something similar. Um, but the I reliance hope.
0: on China is slowly declining. So the longer time yeah. goes, the more possible uh, fuller scale decoupling is.
2: True, true. Um, but again, like, for for the near future, I don't think whether or not China will invade Taiwan is going to hang uh, hinge on these elections, mm-hmm. is maybe the way I should phrase it. Yeah. Because I think fundamentally, I mean, also I think... Again, this could change based on the results of our elections that are coming up, and I mm. think we should probably talk about what we've been seeing um, in terms of U.S. domestic politics vis-a-vis foreign relations. Um, but especially if the Democrats hang on to the White House for um, the next four years, the Biden admin showed itself to be incredibly committed to the transatlantic alliance yes. and what the transatlantic alliance could do to contain aggression from you know, what people in the West might see as like black knight states, like sort of rogue actors um, from the Western view. So I, I I think that most of the disincentives to invade Taiwan remain. I mean, I'm not an expert on uh, Taiwan issues. We should probably get somebody on the show at some point who is. Patrick. Like Patrick Coe. Like, yeah, like our, uh, our personal friend Patrick Coe, um, uh, who is an opinionated friend of ours. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he, he's a Brazilian, but Taiwanese uh, in terms of his family
2: heritage. I think he's there at but, the moment as well, actually. I think he, is yeah. in Taiwan, yeah.
0: you're right? Yeah. Um, I'll add one thing before we talk about U.S. domestic politics, because being the closest thing to the world superpower, uh, Yeah, that's an important factor here in global events, but the only thing I'll add for Taiwan is I agree with you in that when you think about it rationally, if you think about it from a realist international affairs perspective, China just does not, should not invade Taiwan. There's very little incentive, but consistently from meetings between Nixon and Maoist officials to meetings between Carter and Deng Xiaoping officials. Something very consistent that Chinese officials have sort of told American officials privately when they've when have been these questions asked about what the other side doesn't understand is they said, the Americans don't appreciate how much we care about China, how, Taiwan, how serious we are about Taiwan, how on an ideological level it, we are very passionate about seeing that island become part of the mainland. Maybe that's changed more recently because we don't hear as much about how Xi Jinping and his officials think, but that's always been front of mind for them. Uh, Yeah, let's talk about domestic politics, though. We are recording this actually just a couple of days after the third GOP debate, and I would argue relative to the previous ones, foreign policy took the center stage, frankly at a greater level, I think, than we've seen in any uh, presidential debate that I have in in my uh, memory, which granted only goes back to probably 2016, but... Yeah, what do you all make of this? Because we do see this huge rift in the Republican Party, in that we have uh, folks like Nikki Haley, who are very hawkish. Mike Pence, as well, prior to, drop, to dropping out, who toe a line that is relatively similar to the Biden line. And then you have folks like Vivek Ramaswamy, and increasingly Donald Trump, at least in his rhetoric, that is a little bit less. Desantis pro- as well. Ukraine. Desantis is Desantis is really, I think, epitomizes the middle. Between Haley and Ramaswamy, or Haley and Trump.
2: I mean, Desantis went on record calling the Ukraine war a territorial squabble, he did. Uh, or a turf war. I think was the phrase between um, between uh, like two nations far away from the United States, or something to that effect.
1: Mm. Well, yeah. I do you see this um, increasing trend in Republican politics since uh, I think since the party started changing during Trump, it became like increasingly common, like an isolationist trend, yeah. which honestly, just, like, pisses me off whenever I see it because I, I, I feel like people, they'll say stuff like that, like, oh, this is just a turf war far away from us. I'm like, this is, like, important. Mm-hmm. Like, this is Im- impacting, like, the oil economy. This is impacting, like, the green economy. the entire- And it, it's also just about, like, do strategic interests, it's like well, if you just let well, Russia. Up.
2: It's also are, are are you interested in like Europe being like a politically and economically functional place?
1: Because
2: uh, <laughs> yeah. if you're well, interested in like Europe being a functional continent, you kind of have to want the Russians not to
1: win. There's because this, yeah, because there's just this like sense that really annoys me. Because I, I I even feel a lot of times so I'm like Ronasantis, you're a smart guy. You know this isn't a turf war between. Like you know, I know you don't probably don't think like that. He, I think, um, you know, it's like rhetoric to appeal. This is to our this. resident Floridian speaking. It's, yeah, <laughs> I hate it on the It's like this rhetoric to appeal to this audience that I just don't think knows what they're talking about hmm. when it comes to like foreign affairs. I'm, I don't want to sound like arrogance, but it's like a sentiment I've heard a lot from, like maybe even people I've like um, known in in the past. Uh, where like in in my, my home states or just just some people where they, they have the sense that these wars far away just don't matter for America mm-hmm. which and I, I understand where the sentiment comes from because um, our nation did get sucked into like the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq and in some cases like in the case of Afghanistan especially didn't really accomplish much mm-hmm. um, so I, I understand where the sentiment comes from but the sense that every time there's a war abroad it just isn't Something that's going to impact us, I think, is just very ignorant.
0: And, and I yeah. think there is a messaging thing here in tr- in terms of the Biden administration's message has generally been one of by supporting Ukraine, we're wearing down Russia. Russia is an, is an adversary. This yeah. keeps us safer. He also makes but a, values-based and, and as a, values-based a one, values based. And there is absolutely
2: values huge which is Ukraine.
0: Better. For all that it its democracy is far from perfect, yeah, and often classified, I think, fairly as a hybrid regime. Uh, it still has a broad value to democracy that, that current Russian society, or at least Vladimir Putin, yeah. certainly does not. But I would add that I think uh, President Zelensky articulated a message that is much more powerful, which is the articulation that why send American money? Because if we don't send American aid, if we don't send American money, if we don't send American arms to Ukraine now, and Ukraine loses, there's a decent chance, a non-zero chance, that in 10, 20, 30 years... It's going to be a NATO member country that's attacked. And American boots, children, yeah. grandchildren will be yeah. the ones I mean, it's, fighting. It's,
2: it's not just that, though. I think when we conceptualize what the disappearance of American assistance to Ukraine would mean, um, we have to think about what the goals of the Putin regime are. I, I don't think anyone should be convinced that the goal of the Kremlin is uh, no longer the full decapitation of an independent Ukraine. I don't think they'd be fighting like they are
0: if that wasn't still their intention. The
2: rhetoric has changed because Putin now believes it's no longer possible for him to take over all of Ukraine Mm because the West has backed the Ukrainians so much. But if we conceive of what the total disappearance of Western security assistance would mean for the Ukrainians, there's a good chance it would mean another complete Russian drive to Kiev, which would entail the creation of sort of a failed state of 40 million people in Europe. Which is like, if you're talking about refugees, if you're talking about the economic ramifications, if you're talking about the security implications for places like Moldova and Poland and the Baltics, that's a huge deal.
0: Um,
2: I mean, I also, also, uh, the ambitions of the regime keep expanding in other ways as well. This is something we were just talking about earlier today. and a, some, somewhat of like a Eurasia watcher myself, you're seeing increased attention to what Putin sort of terms the union state, mm-hmm. which in theory for now is only between Belarus and Russia. Right. But I think in the near future could very, very easily come to encapsulate some kind of mass civilizational state comprised of Russia, Belarus, occupied Ukrainian territory, and sort of these odd breakaway states from Georgia yeah. that we sometimes touch upon. Yeah. So I think there, there would be huge implications for the entire Eurasian and European space if you can have, if Western support for the Ukrainians disappears. Which by the way, I'll make this point as well. I think that's a different question than the question of when do the Ukrainians sort of say we're not taking back all of our territory, there needs yeah. to be negotiations. Right. My person, so you can have a perfectly reasonable conversation about that. The conversation over, when should we try to pursue a ceasefire with the Russians is a different conversation than what's going on in the GOP, mm-hmm. which the conversation there is this war doesn't matter. Ukraine is a is either a deeply corrupt regime not worth defending. Or in some cases, you even get rhetoric about how Ukraine, you know, isn't much of a real state. Like you do see that bubbling up in the sort of national conservative discourse. Ramaswamy, who sort of my, yeah. my my read of Ramaswamy is that he encapsulates like an ideologically committed national conservative right-wing vision. I think DeSantis, there's a very good argument to be made. He doesn't actually believe in any of this. He's just an opportunist. Ramaswamy, I think, is a true believer. And when Ramaswamy gets on a stage, he doesn't say, oh, we have to admit that there is a stalemate in Ukraine. We should support our allies, but try to get them to come to the negotiating table. He says things like there is a Nazi regime in Kiev, he says things about the fact that, oh, these regions haven't even been part of Ukraine since 2014. Why should we care about them? Mm-hmm. Oh, there are Russian speakers there. Russia has a has a legitimate interest in these regions. Right. These things that align much more so with the actual narrative coming out of the Kremlin.
0: Right, which I was going to say, he doesn't, Ramaswamy doesn't say that he wants Russia to win. He
2: says that he doesn't like Russia, but... A lot of his talking points for why not to back Ukraine are Russia's talking well, points. Ramaswamy has also said in the past that he wants to pursue detente with the Russians to try to split them off from the Chinese because he views China as the actual enemy. There's no reason we should pursue detente with Russia. It's a rogue expansionary state with a massive nuclear arsenal and the ability to destroy world oil markets. And I, there should I, be no detente with Russia. I
0: would, argue, I, this is even, I would argue that there could be an
2: avenue for pursuing detente with China.
0: Russia's the one I cannot see it with.
2: I think the Biden administration has actually done a pretty good job of making sure we don't fall into a Cold War trap with the Chinese. He sent Blinken, and and Janet Yellen has made a series of statements to this effect. Yes, they're going to
0: meet in San Francisco uh, coming soon, uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping.
2: Yeah, and I mean... Two weeks from now, I think. Biden has sort of drawn red lines around chips um, and Mm -hmm. and Taiwan and these good things that I support, but he's also, you know, uh, uh, I think he has been careful not to fall into, like, sort of um, the, the, the trap of of a new cold war with
1: China, which I don't think we should pursue.
2: Diego,
0: any thoughts? We've been taught We've been we've been hogging this side of the table. For a
1: bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess now that we're getting back to, um, I guess American politics. Um, I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Vivek Ramaswamy is kind of a psychopath, and like <laughs> he maybe should- and like maybe a Manchurian candidate. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the I movie, mean, but I, I guess my, my my sort of thoughts on the. On the primaries, to be honest, I haven't been paying as much attention to the primaries just because I, I very highly doubt that any of these people are going to mm-hmm. be able to like beat Donald Trump, Trump anyways. Yeah. I so I, the way I see it is I'm kind of like, I don't really think any of this stuff matters because I feel like these guys at best are just going to be like a vice president. Uh, but, Ramaswamy, but, though,
2: might be a yeah, vice president.
1: Yeah, which, I mean, would be scary, but I, I still just feel like Trump's uh, views are, are going to take precedence at the end of the day. Um, although what what I will say is we, we, I guess we, we still there's still an air of uncertainty because um, I think if there's an election now Trump would like win the Republican primary um, oh, yeah. but with all the, there's the a lot of time cases with to. all the court cases he's up against um, you never know if something's gonna happen where maybe he gets found guilty of something and he gets sent to prison or, like so- something happens Or he's healthy even he's yeah old you know, he has like a heart attack or something yeah. like he's a pretty old guy um, and then if that happens and I mean... And heck, there's
0: even... And I know this is always floated and it doesn't go anywhere, but every time there's a convention with a controversial candidate singing to win, there's always that talk. And what if Trump hypothetically was already sentenced to prison when the convention happens... Is there going to be a rebellion from the GOP leadership that says we cannot nominate someone who is a convicted? Criminal? I mean, I think if that happens,
2: the whole party collapses because that's where the base is. The base likes the fact that he's. This under is indictment, just it. The, Repu-
0: the Republican establishment does not like Trump, but they can't abandon him. I mean, this is not new information. So, I mean,
2: I want to put some numbers behind what we're saying, just to sort of back up mm-hmm. what Diego and AJ are talking about. Most recent Iowa polling data, Trump at 45%, uh, percent, and that's with all the court cases, you know. Um, Ramaswamy comes in at 5%. I guarantee you Ramaswamy's backup voters are not voting for Nikki Haley. DeSantis mm-hmm. at 17%. And again, like, my perception would be, I bet the number two choice for most DeSantis people isn't Nikki Haley. I, I would guess it's Trump. Yeah. And then Haley, who's, like, the big hope of, like, the more traditional wing of the Republican Party, only 13.9%. Haley is the person in—this is a, someone whos who—, is, who
0: does not like a lot of what she has to say. She's the GOP. She's the single GOP candidate who I think I would have a decent chance of voting for in a general election. I don't know that I would.
2: I like, but the- she's the one who I actually look at it and be like. I could see myself on. I like watching her bully Vivek Ramaswamy because Vivek <laughs> Ramaswamy is an infuriating person, <laughs> and I like when Nikki Haley called him scum on a GOP stage because he attacked it. her daughter. I
0: also, I, <laughs> yeah, and I loved. I also loved her comeback about the five-inch heels. Yeah, because um, what was, was Ramaswamy
2: so thinking? Who's like giving these this guy these lines? He's like, oh, you know what's a good idea? Make, Make fun, fun, fun of, of a woman, woman for wearing heels. heels. Are you crazy? <laughs> like, who's running this guy's campaign? Like, it's Nikki Haley.
0: She had a quick comeback. She I, don't know, did, I don't know if she cursed yeah. it, but goddamn. I'll good. say
2: on a personal level, <laughs> I've been continually surprised by how good she is on a debate stage because she is. you might have been there she... also, AJ, but um, when I was a freshman in college, I saw her speak when she came to GW. Uh, and I was That's like, not actually. I was really unimpressed. I was like, this lady is giving off some line about how she doesn't even have an ideology. I don't buy any of that. But I, she's great on the debate stage. That's what keeps her campaign going because she, the, 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 in. I think what's happening is that even though she's not polling all that great, the donors who are scared of another Trump presidency or, God forbid, a Ramaswamy presidency, they see her on a debate stage and they throw money her way. Yeah,
0: no, I think so. Um, all right, we've had a really great talk about all of these issues that are coming up in in the coming months. I think that's great stuff for folks to take away and folks to consider, and possibly stuff that could be the center of future uh, pin drop episodes. Speaking of future pin drop episodes, let's talk a little bit about what we're getting into this season, uh, and then we'll also do a little bit of gentle reflection about the past season.